Blog Talk Radio. to another episode of Beyond the Cover. It's great to have you all with us tonight. I am one of your hosts, John Robb. we got Jeff Bears. He is getting on the phone right now with our first guest of the night, none other than New York, best-selling, New York Times bestselling author Steve Barry to talk about his latest book, The Bishop's Pawn. So we are very, very excited to have Steve uh, coming on the show to talk about that. We are also going to be joined on our second hour. Normally, Jeff and I like to kind of you know, talk away and do other things. We're going to be joined by none other than author Kelly Stanley, and she is going to be coming on. First time um, we uh, are able to speak with her. And I want to remind everybody, too, that we are joined, that we are brought to you by um, Kensington Books, so please make sure you visit kensingtonbooks.com for more information on that and everything that they have going on. Another thing I want to remind everybody, too, that we just got a hold of is called Amazing Ebooks. You need to check uh, that out. It's on Twitter. Um, you can type in amazing ebooks and you can go to calamontpublications.org or calamonteditions.org to join them. And it's a great thing for authors to uh, get their book out and they tweet and they do a bunch of things. And it's one of those things that you need to get involved in when you do that too. So amazing ebooks, amazing Kindle, they are all over Twitter. But we got good news here that. Um, Jeff has been able to now connect with Steve, so we are going to bring both of them onto the show. So, hey, guys, thank you guys so much, Steve, for coming on. Jeff, of course, you too. Hey, how's it going? <laughs> I'm here. There's Steve. How you doing, I'm Steve? Here. Doing fine. No problem. I was telling Jeff, the instruction said to call in at 1030. That's what I did. And you did it, <laughs> and we're in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're all good to go. Um, but well, hey, thanks for doing it's this. always a pleasure to talk to you, Steve. So we want to thank you so much for joining us. We know it's a little late though on the East Coast time, but you know, Cotton Malone doesn't sleep, so neither does Steve Barry, right? Well, Cotton likes his sleep now. He does like. That. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but the you put him in a lot of harrowing situations where he don't get a lot of it sometimes. I've been on the road for the last eight days. So the tour ended uh, yesterday, so it's, it's been a long eight days for me. Yeah, the book came out um, March the 20th, I believe, so it is available now for anybody, however you buy books, whatever format you read them or listen to them in, it is available now. The book came out again, The Bishop's Pawn, March 20th. And so um, this is a prequel, actually, I guess, to the Cotton Malone story, but I want you to enlighten everybody and let us know what you got going on in The Bishop's Pawn. Well, it's the 13th Cotton Malone story, but it reads like the first because it's a it's an origin story. We go back and find out how Cotton became an agent, how he be, how he first transitioned over in, into the Justice Department from the Navy. And he's a young man, 18 years ago, and he gets caught up in something with the FBI and with uh, the murder of Dr. Martin Luther King. And uh, I used the assassination, uh, since it's the 50th anniversary coming up in about a, a little more than, you know, next week. Uh, we, well, we can, uh, yeah, next week it will be now. Next week uh, will be the 50th anniversary. And I I got the idea for the novel about 10 years ago, and I've held it till this year because I knew this would be a subject we'd be talking about now. And, and we are. And uh, hopefully the readers are going to get a pretty good education about uh, what happened in M- Memphis in 1968. Nice. I love prequels. Well, you've seen my review, so you know what I thought of the book. But I I'm curious, um, and for our listeners, love the book, by the way. Um, I'm curious, why did you decide you wanted to do a prequel? And also, why did you decide to write this in first person? Well, every series every series has a, an origin story at some point, somewhere you find out how the character began and how it came out. I mean, most most every series I've ever read or, or been familiar with has that so I knew at some point I'd do an origin story and I wanted it to be in first person because I've never written a, a, a full-length novel in first person so I wanted to attempt that and, and give it a uh, give it a run and this story was perfect for that because it's 
it, it, it was a story where I could put Cotton in every scene. It made sense to put him in every scene. He could play – everything could play out through Cotton's mind, and I could make it work. And so I got to do all of that. It's also the shortest novel I've ever written. It's only 99,000 words, which is actually – you know, shorter is harder. You know, what's the old saying? The guy said, I wrote a three-page letter, letter, and he apologized because if he'd had more time, he'd have written it shorter. And it's the same thing here. You know, writing shorter is hard. And uh, so I wanted to, to give a shot at that as well. And I think it turned out pretty well. I mean, I liked it, and you seemed to like it. It was a, a wonderful review that you gave me. Well, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, a great yeah I mean, we were able to read, we, we were able to review the book. They, they grabbed it so fast, and luckily I got the audio version. And I love the audio version. I love the narrator um, right so far of the book. I think he... I think it's fascinating, and the audio version really brings it to life. I mean, I love it when people read me stories. I always tell Shannon, read me a book, you know, because it kind of brings it to life for me. And that's what I kind of felt a lot, you know, with this is that it's with the prequel, it's almost like breathing life into cotton. So it's a way that you can sit there and, like, uh, you know, like what C.S. Lewis did with, you know, the magician's nephew being number six, and then they flipped it to number one. This is like breathing life now into the series. But I, I wanted, like I said, I, it's the 13th, but it reads like the first. But in my case, you know, I have 13 Cotton Malones, but you don't have to read them in order. I don't write them where you have to do that. Right. You can skip around with no problem whatsoever. This one, of course, you you know, you could pick it up and, and, and you get to know Cotton. Those who have read the series for a long time will, will, will get to know him a little bit better. I got to know him a little bit better while writing it. Yeah. So it's... Uh, it, it's it's an interesting story and it deals with a fascinating subject matter that is, uh, you know, still to this day baffles us. You know, with all the unanswered questions from the murder of, of Dr. Martin Luther King, there's so many unanswered questions, and sadly, we will never have answers to them. Right. Well, it was such a tumultuous time, uh, and he wasn't the only one that was assassinated around that time frame. I'm wondering if you could talk a bit about that time period. This is the first novel I've written in which I lived through the history. So I was actually there, and I'm, so I remember all of this. Uh, this is the most immediate novel I've ever written. Most of my history takes place long ago, but this one, no, more, not much, so much so, right, when, right here. Uh, it, 1968 was a tough time for America. I mean, the Vietnam War was at its pretty much its height. Uh, everything was in upheaval. We were electing a new president. No one had any idea who that would be. Johnson is pulled out of the race. Um, everything is just really about to boil over, and it and it culminates there on April the fourth when King is killed, and America basically burned for the next three to four months. And then something strange happened around August or September of that year. It stopped. It all stopped, and everything shifted, and everything changed. And the novel deals with all of this and why that might have happened, and 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 what was going on there uh, with 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 what transition there. Uh, King had a really tough time the last year of his life. From April 1967 to April 68 was a tough time for him. A lot had gone wrong. I mean, he came out against the Vietnam War. He lost the presidency year. He lost the white establishment. He lost, lost the black establishment. He lost everything. And his SCLC is in civil war, the, the violent wing of the civil rights movements taking over. He, he was drinking too much. He was smoking too much. He was overweight. He, he just he had a tough time the last year of his life, and it all comes together in Memphis. Everything happens right there, and you know the novel delves into all of this and reminds us about some things that I doubt very few people even knew existed. Well, I was a history major, and I got to tell you, I learned a lot as well. So you're absolutely right. Um, one, one of the other things I mentioned in my review of your book is I thought it was your most personal. And I'm wondering, and based on what you're just telling me, I have a feeling that I was correct. Do you agree with that? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Because I said I lived through it. I mean, I was there. I remember it. I remember the day you were shot. I remember the funeral in Atlanta. I lived in Atlanta, so I was there. And yeah, I, rem I remember all of that and and what happened and all I put together. Now, at the time, I didn't understand it, and I really didn't understand it till I did the research for this novel. Uh, there was a lot I didn't know either, and now I have a gr much greater understanding. I, I read around 400 books on, on you know, writing the novel, and I, there's a lot that I didn't realize, and now it's it's all kind of 
put together there in the story, and the reader is going to get a pretty good education. While they have a a fun, adventurous, you know, thrilling ride, I hope, through the state of Florida over about a 36-hour period where Cotton Malone gets drawn into this massive um, conspiracy and problems and everything that's going on, and nothing is quite as it seems. Yeah, that's the one thing that you are definitely the master at is nothing is ever quite what it seems. It's like you you, you love you, you love to kind of sit there and, and, and kind of point things going one direction and then kind of all of a sudden, boom, shift the rails over and you're on a different track. And, you know, I was born in 1970, so I, was, I lived kind of through the aftermath. I just remember hearing stories about that time, but I really didn't understand, like you said, either. But now you kind of see some of the correlations that people are talking about in today's day and age back then and what happened like in 1968 and some of the senators and representatives that are alive today that were or that were alive back then that are still serving today so in researching the book and then in researching that time period how much correlations did you like kind of see from today back into then now well i mean it's it's really different today i mean it really is people like a lot of times I want to try to, to draw the correlation, but it, it was very different back then. I mean, you know, segregation was still very fresh. Uh, you know, there was a lot of problems. I mean, racial racial tensions in those days were, were, were we say we have racial tensions today, but they're nothing compared to the way they were in the 1960s. Uh, sure. It was a whole different animal back then. I mean, and one of the things that I desperately wanted to make clear with this novel is that people died in the civil rights movement. They died every day. People were killed protesting. They were killed on the streets. It happened all the time. And there's some incidents uh, noted in the novel to, to remind people of this, that it, this was not just people with arm in arms walking down a street. There was much more going on here. It was a very serious, deadly, dangerous movement that altered the course of America. I mean, nobody did more for human rights in the 20th century than Martin Luther King. He, 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 he changed, fundamentally changed the United States of America. Maybe Abraham Lincoln is the only one close, enough, close to him that would have accomplished that. But it was a fundamental shift in the way we think and what we do. And his legacy lived on after his death, and this is what the novel you know, deals with. It, 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 it went on. It's still there here today. Yeah, we got problems. Sure we do. Mm-hmm. But we also have solutions to those problems today. We know, we, we know what we need to do. We just need to do it. True. Mm-hmm. I was actually going to ask you, do you see parallels into what's going on today? Well, as far as the the fight goes, it still goes on, and the novel ends on a very upbeat note. I was very careful to be respectful to King and respectful to his legacy. Uh, there's a shocker in the novel. There's a there's a great surprise in the novel, and we're not going to say what that is, but there is a surprise in the novel, and I don't foreshadow it. I don't hint to it. I don't give you any indication that it's coming. I don't give you any, even a remote hint that it's coming. It just comes, and there it is. And I did that on purpose. I wanted that surprise to come out of nowhere, where you go like, "Whoa, I, I, where that? Where's that?" Well, mm-hmm. when you go back and think about it, you'll realize that you know there was plenty of warning, but you just didn't see it. Uh, and that surprise ought to get you thinking, and I'm hoping it does <laughs> get you thinking about some things. And that was the the purpose of it. Uh, the, the The whole idea of the novel came from listening to the mountaintop speech which is the speech he gave on the night of April 3rd before he died, the night before he died. People should go on the Internet and find it and, and watch it. It's about 30 minutes long, and, and you should watch the, the, the actual video of it with him speaking. You'll see a man that looks about 50 to 60 years old, but he's actually only 39 years old. And you'll see a tired man, a sick man. He was sick that night. He wasn't even supposed to speak. He had no prepared remarks at all. So when you're listening to the speech, you have to realize that he's making up every word as he's speaking. And the entire speech is dealing with mortality. And it sounds just like a man 
who knows he's about to die. And it's a very interesting to listen to it. It's spooky to listen to it now. And when I listened to it, I, I, I realized there was a novel there. And so it all kind of comes together. I, I asked and received permission from the King family to reproduce 1,100 words of the speech that is in the novel. So you'll be able to read, the reader can actually read that for themselves. And I'm so glad yeah, you did yeah, that too. Yeah, and that's the and that's the realism that you bring to, you know, your books because for a lot of people who may be just finding out about, you know, you know, just finding out about you like they just crawled out of their hole and then they just realize that Steve Barry is an author. So it's just a matter of, you know, when you write the history in the books, you also list out the things that were factual and the things that were fiction in the book. Yeah, but what was but what was one of your biggest challenges with this one, making sure with that fact and fiction, because like you said, to keep honoring the legacy and do things right in a time that was so, you know, uh, violent and just so combustible? I had to be true to what happened. I didn't want to be exploitive. I didn't want to, to you know, go too far. I kept this novel, as I do all of my books, about 90% to history. It's only about 10% I trip it up because it's a novel, and my job is sure. to entertain you. So I, I I don't lose focus of that. Now, the writer's note in the back will tell you what's what, so you don't, so you'll get that clear. But I, was, I wanted to be very careful with King's legacy. I wanted to be mindful of King. Yes, we're, we, we go into some of his fallacies. We're gonna, we, we do explore it because it's relevant with the FBI and all that happened with King with the FBI. Uh, and King himself said that he was not a perfect man. He was flawed. He had mistakes. He was not a saint. Uh, and he would, uh, you know, he made errors in his life, and these are exposed a little bit in the novel, so we could bring it out, as I said, in relation to what happened between King and J. Edgar Hoover, which is vital to the plot of the book, all of which is true. Uh, everything about King and the FBI there is, is true. Wow. Yeah, I, I keep hoping you're going to do a book about J. Edgar Hoover at some point, just because... Well, this was my Hoover book, pretty much, because uh, there's, I mean, the secret files and all that stuff has kind of been done to death. So, I mean, Ludlum did it the best. You know, he did it. He, his book was the uh, was the best of all. So, I don't, I don't know if anybody could, uh, I don't know if anybody, if there's anything to be done there. I mean, those files were destroyed at his death, so they're long gone. And uh, you know that, you know, he died in the early morning hours. They delayed it for about six to eight hours, announcing he was dead to give his secretary time to get those files and start destroying them. And she did. She it took her three days, but she got them all destroyed. And Jeez. they're long. It's all long gone now. Like I said, today, today, if Hoover existed and did what he did, he would be in prison. And so would all of the agents who participated in the counterintelligence program. They'd be in prison, too. Um, Pro of the FBI, which existed from 1957 to 1972, is probably the most corrupt organization ever created by the United States government. And it was horrendous what, these, what, what it did. And the novel exposes that and lays it out, and all of it's true. I mean, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't have to make up a word. It's all right there and true. And we learned all of this in the 1970s when the FBI was investigated by the United States Senate, and all of this was revealed. Crazy times. It, it, yeah, different, absolutely. Different times. Different times. Different you can times. Get away with just stuff think. That you can't get I, away. I mean, with. just think about getting your hands on like, you know, twenty pages of the notes he had. I mean, just think about that. God, he had a lot of dirt on people, and that's how he functioned. Now, now he never blackmailed anyone. That's the thing. He never, he never blackmailed him. Here's how Hoover worked. Hoover would call you in, say the chairman of the Senate Appropriations Committee. Now, he sent his agents out, Con and Telpro, to gather all the dirt on the guy. And that's what they did. They went out and they got all the dirt. They bring the dirt back to Hoover. He calls the guy and he sits him down. He says, look, we were investigating something else. It had nothing to do with you, completely unrelated, and we stumbled onto this. And he shows him the dirt. And he says, here's what I got. Don't worry about it. The agents are fine. Never come, never leave their mouths. I've got control of this. This is never going to go anywhere. I just wanted you to know that we stumbled on it, but I got it under control. And he owns the guy from that point on. Now, he's not blackmailed him. He hasn't threatened him. He hasn't done anything. He's his friend. 
And that's he how he implied something. <laughs> oh, he's, he's, he was a master of doing this. And, master. And that, that's master. That's how he worked. And he was yeah. really good at it. And he had, a, he had a cadre of people that owed him, particularly senators and congressmen. And he knew how to play the game, and he was, and he was very good at it. There was one guy he was terrified of. Do you know who that was? Who? His wife? No, no he wasn't no, he married. Didn't have, he didn't have That's right, he wasn't married. He had, no, Richard Nixon. <laughs> because oh. Richard, Nixon, Richard Nixon knew how to play the game, too. And he was a much better game True. player at it than Hoover was. And he was terrified of Nixon when Nixon became president. But Nixon was smart. He kept him around because he, he did the reverse on Hoover and, and, and reversed on him. And, and Hoover, you know, became sort of pretty much like a lapdog to, to Richard Nixon. And Nixon says he was going to replace him in the 1973 or 74, but he, who knows? Hoover dies in 72. But he kept him around and used him, as all presidents did, by the way. All presidents used him, even Kennedy. All of them used Hoover to their advantage. They'd complain about him and moan about him, but they used him to their advantage. Mm-hmm. They're, they're as guilty of his excesses as Hoover is. <laughs> oh, yeah, man. And that, now, now they just fire him left and right. It's a different time. And what's happening now is we're getting a little bit of a, of a, of a repercussion from the reforms that came to the FBI in the 1970s. They changed the director of the FBI. No longer could you serve indefinitely. You now serve one 10-year term, and that's it. You can't be reappointed. So you, you get one shot, and that's all. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of reforms that happen. But the FBI lately has been slipping over back into politics a little bit, and that is the one thing it, that Hoover avoided. He avoided the FBI getting caught up in politics, not because he was a great no statesman or whatever, but because he didn't want to lose control of the FBI. So he kept it out of politics. Well, they slipped back over a little bit. They'll see the light, and they'll get back over the line and get away from that. What a lot of people don't realize is the FBI is not a police force. It's not. It's an investigative agency. Its job is to gather facts and provide it to the appropriate official for them to make a decision as to what to do. They are not a police force. They're an investigative agency. They, they gather information and they pass it on to the appropriate person. We never wanted a national police force. That was very specific when the FBI was created. And, and thank you for clarifying that because I think yeah, a lot of people don't understand that. No, they, don't. They, think, they think they're a police force. I didn't understand that. I'm not going to lie. No. The FBI doesn't go out and investigate something on its own. It has to be asked to do that. It has to be directed to do that by somebody. Most times that comes from the Justice Department and the various attorney generals and assistant attorney generals give them that directive. But they can get directives from state and local agencies. They can get directives from all kinds of places. But they have to be asked. They just don't show up and say, here we are. Well, I, I'm curious, um, since I just noticed what time it was, and we're almost out of time with you, Steve, but um, since I love history, you love history, obviously, I'm wondering, is there a period of hi- or a historical event that you have wanted to stick Cotton Malone in, but you were not able to for some reason? Well, not yet. there are some places. <laughs> I want to send him to the South Pacific. I want to send him to Asia because I haven't done much in that region of the world. I'd like to send him to New Zealand and Australia. I just don't have a story yet for that. Uh, I've been wanting to put him into Poland, and he's going there in 2020. So I've, I've definitely been wanting to put him into Poland, and that's where he's headed. Uh, You're going to so Malta next year, right? Going to Malta next year, yeah. The, it's, uh, the whole thing is uh, it's called the Malta Exchange, and it's uh, Cotton's going to go back overseas for the next few years and back to what I used to do was overseas novels. And so he's going to be right. uh, with Malta and the Knights of Malta. And uh, it's a really kind of big treasure hunt story, uh, got a Templar legacy feel to it, that kind of thing. And it'll... Um, I enjoyed writing it, and now he's going to go to Poland, which is good. And I'd love to send him to Russia. He hasn't, you know, I'd like to get him back there where he does a little bit more into Russia. 
but the South Pacific and Asia are areas that I have not sent him to at all. So he may find his way there one day and uh, and, and work it through. But um, other than that, I don't have any you know any burning things now. So nothing uh, standalone-ish either. Well, I wish I could. I'd love to go back and find out what happened to Tom Sagan and what happened to Miles Lord uh, from Miles Lord from Romanoff Prophecy Sagan from the Columbus Affair. I'd love to do that. The problem is, I can't write a standalone in lieu of cotton. I can write it in addition to cotton, but I, and I can't write two books a year. So as, there's no way. There's too much research. Sure. There's too much there. Not if you're reading 400 books for this one. You ain't got no, no time to no do one. Exactly. Read and write. <laughs> there's no way in the world I could write two books a year, and I can't get someone to write it with me because they don't know how to write. You know, they they don't do it like I do it. So right. I'd end up writing the book anyway. So that's a that's a problem. So I think I'm stuck with Cotton, which is great. I love him. He's my guy. Uh, and oh yeah, some, he's your guy. Yeah, someday maybe I could write some standalones. But now I could write a straight adventure story or a straight suspense story that doesn't have all the history in it. But that's not a Steve Barry book, so I I have a problem there. You know, my, my yeah, yeah. Or the only time you and the only time you really wrote with somebody, you did that thing with Raymond Corey. I remember I had you on, and that was that uh, book you had like Shadow, I did Shadow Tag, Tag, and that was very interesting. You know, and I did a short yeah. story with Jim Rollins, and I did a short story with Diana Gabaldon. But short stories are. Those aren't so bad. I mean, I can do that right. with somebody, but a full-length novel, different That's story. That's different. Different story. Yeah. Right. Well, Steve, we want to thank you so much for coming on. We have come up to the end of the time. I mean, it always goes fast when we talk to you, but I always learn at least 100 new things whenever I interview you. And it's not just from your books, but it's just from the explanations. And so, you know, and like Jeff said, you know, The Bishop's Pawn is, is your, definitely your most personal book. And I want to thank you so much for coming on and just sharing a little bit about with uh, a little bit of, a little bit about it with us. Glad to do it. And the book's out in stores now, everywhere in all formats, and they yep. can find out more about that book and me and the other books at steveberry.org, my website. And did you, you hear where you are on the matters. list yet? Yeah. Hmm? Sir, did you hear where you're on the list yet? Uh, no, uh, that'll be tomorrow. Okay, fingers okay. crossed. We're, we're crossing the fingers for the one elusive spot. Uh, it's not going to be number one, I can tell you right now, because Daniel Steele came out that week, so that's, there's no way in the world. So Damn Daniel Steele and her romance. I can't I can't <laughs> play in her league. There's no way in the world. So, no, that's not happening. So, uh, you know, hopefully we'll get a nice nice ranking, a high, nice high ranking. that We normally come in around somewhere around three, four, five, somewhere in that neighborhood is where sure. we do. So hopefully that will be where we'll get to do that again. We'll find out tomorrow Tomorrow evening. That's the excitement on Wednesday. Well, right, good, luck, good luck. Fingers crossed. All right. Thank you so much. All right, Steve. You have a Thanks good one, so my man. You take it easy. We'll talk to you later. All right. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. So, again, everybody, that is author Steve Barry, New York Times bestselling author Steve Barry, talking about his book, The Bishop's Pawn. It's the latest in his Cotton Malone series, basically the prequel going back to the beginning Showing up cotton, where did he start, how are you doing, all wrapped up into a fabulous mystery, of course, centered around, like he said, MLK, um, FBI, little J. Edgar Hoover, a lot of stuff going on in there. So visit steveberry.org for more information on anything. And, of course, the book is out now. However you buy them and however you get them, uh, it's available now. So make sure you check it out. Jeff, we're going to take a really short break. Because I see Kelly Stanley is on the phone, and she's waiting patiently to get on here to talk with us. Not many people wait patiently to talk with us. Normally they're like, God damn, i got to get on and talk with you too. But exactly, And, and Kelly's so patiently. nice to want to talk to us. She is. Kelly's just, I mean, she's just a nice person. You know, it is. She just, she's very nice. I remember Shannon and I were talking about uh, when I got home over dinner, she was like, Oh, you got Kelly on the phone? That's great, bro. She goes, Oh, you're going to love it? And I'm like, Yes, I know. It's going to be wonderful. So, no pressure, <laughs> Kelly, if you can hear us. Yeah, um, no pressure. But you, better, but, but you better bring it. But hey, we're going to get to her <laughs> right after this. <laughs>
Everybody, after the break, we want to thank you all for listening. And just in case, you know, Jeff, I've never said anything, but I played that um, music before, and it's called Sabotage, Edge of Thorns. But if you ever listen to the singer, you might find something that's interesting about that song, because if people know Trans-Siberian Orchestra, that's the guy who started it. So his name is uh, John Olivia. So just so you know, he started Trans-Siberian Orchestra, and he played in this band Sabotage with his brother, Chris, and his brother passed away quite some time ago. Sabotage was done. He started Trans-Siberian Orchestra, and that's where that started. But, that, you know, just in case you didn't know, that's where that is. So that's my history lesson to you. I'm not quite as, you know, keen as some of the history. I know ancient history. That's where I go and do my dabbling. <laughs> yeah. But, hey, well, we're, we're going to we go back be, in time now. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Hey, so, but we are thrilled to be able to have author Kelly Stanley coming on tonight and talking about her latest book called City of Sharks. So, Kelly, thank you so much for coming on. How are you doing? Thank you so much, John and Jeff. I'm doing great. I love to hear the little trivia about TSO because, as I was saying uh, just a second ago, I listen to them every Christmas, so that's very cool trivia. Yeah, there you go. And. I'll give you the one thing, too. Here's, here's another little bit of trivia for you. They have a West Coast and an East Coast show. So oh. it's different band members for each one. But the guy who actually runs Trans-Siberian Orchestra on the shows, he passed away last year. So we're not, oh. they're not sure how it's going to work out coming up this year. But, yeah, John Olivia was the guy who started it and after his brother died. And the Christmas Attic was, like, one of the big um, yeah. albums that they had out. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. It's, so if you like Trans Siberian Orchestra, you should listen to Sabotage because his albums, while they're a little heavy metalish and very guitar oriented, they're stories, and right. he does do stories within his stuff. So I love concept well, albums. Oh, cool. I'm, I'm strange you. like that. Yeah. No. <laughs> I know You're stupid strange shit in a that, wonderful that gets way. you nowhere except on Jeopardy. Uh, well, it also can make you a writer. You know, I mean. Most writers I know are strange, including myself, in wonderful ways, I hope. So there you go. And, you know, and you can win a drink at a bar sometimes. Even though I don't drink, I just take Diet Coke. So I'm actually a really cheap bet because you only like 2 bucks, where a normal drink is like 12 bucks. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I we get free eat, refills, and you guys don't. I know. That's true. That's true. Yeah, so. so what did you guys but want hey, to ask me I'm, today, tonight? Anything in particular? music. Let's jump into <laughs> City of Sharks. <laughs> Because um, this is the, 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 the book just came out March 20th, so it's available. However people buy books, whatever, it's available now March 20th. And I want to make sure that you go to Kelly with an I, so kellystanley.com is your website. Um, get that out. So, but I want you to tell, let everybody know a little bit about City of Sharks and what you got going on. Okay, well, City of Sharks is the fourth novel of the Miranda Corby series. Uh, the first was City of Dragons, which um, – I was very uh, lucky and honored to uh, have won numerous awards for that book, and it was an L.A. Times Book Prize finalist and a lot of other things, and won the McCavity and so forth and so on. So it had a really great critical reception, and I followed it up with two other books, and then The City of Sharks is a continuation of that series. Now, of course, although a few years have gone by in the writing of these novels, um, within the chronology of what happens to my protagonist, Miranda Corby, it has been just about a year. Uh, and in City of Sharks, she is preparing herself to leave the city where she was born, the city that she looks at as being her parent, her lover, her, her essence, the, 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 the city that represents her soul, uh, probably the entity to which she is the closest to, um, and that's the city of San Francisco. And she is preparing to leave the city to travel abroad, trying to get a, a seat 
on um, a ship, one of the few ships, you know, that um, are ferrying people to war-torn Britain uh, before the channel lines are completely shut down because of German U-boat activity and the sinking of said ships. She's trying to get a passage on one of these vessels to get to the U.K. to find her mother, who, uh, as we learn in City of Ghosts, um, basically had to leave Miranda behind, um, and she hasn't seen, uh, Miranda hasn't seen her mother since, since she was about five or six years old. So this is her last case that she knows. I mean, she she's about to do something that's extremely dangerous. I mean, she's going into a war zone, uh, embarking on what most people in the book and, and in normal life would consider a fool's quest, and she you know, knows this is her last chance to, really her last case in San Francisco, and it may be her last case ever. So um, she's pressed for time. She's got, she finds out early on in the novel that she does have a seat reserved on one of the last boats leaving New York. Uh, and, you know, she decides to help this young woman who is a secretary who works for a publisher, uh, a book publisher, in the same building that Miranda works, which is the Monadnock building on Market Street in San Francisco. And um, this young lady, Louise, the secretary, uh, is going through some stress and anxiety because she thinks someone's trying to kill her. And uh, from that point on, Miranda kind of plunges into the world of uh, publishing, which could could in itself explain, the, be the metaphor behind the title, but also, she, her, her investigation of what ensues in the book leads her to Alcatraz, which, of course, at the time was the most infamous American prison, uh, was the devil's island of our country. And um, Alcatraz itself could very well be termed a city of sharks as well. So in, intermingled with this tale are appearances by some very well-known real people, including C.S. Forrester, who uh, you know created Horatio Hornblower? He lived in Berkeley at the time in 1940. Um, John Steinbeck makes a memorable cameo appearance toward the end of the book, and throughout the novel, Miranda is aided and abetted by the famous columnist and one of my favorite people because I had the opportunity to actually talk to him was Herb Kane, the late Herb Kane, the great San Francisco Chronicle columnist, and. Uh, I'll tell you, writing Herb was one of the joys of writing this book. He was a character that was just, I, I did a lot of research on him. I did meet him, uh, you know, obviously before he passed in the 90s, and um, he was a joy to write. So there's a lot of, oh, there's a lot of everything in this, in this novel. You know, obviously it's a, it's a detective, hard-boiled detective story. It's a noir. It's a thriller. But, you know, as always, I pull in a lot of real history, real history about Alcatraz, Real history about Playland at the Beach, the uh, amusement park at the on Ocean Beach in San Francisco, and real history about the publishing business and about writers like Steinbeck and Forrester and uh, certainly Herb Cain. So that's what it is in a nutshell. Well, um, hmm. quick story for you. Um, when I worked in San Francisco in the late 80s, mm-hmm. on Halloween I was wearing a, a Star Trek outfit. I was dressed as Spock. Awesome. And I'm in the elevator with somebody else, and there's two guys in the elevator. And one of the guys in the elevator looks at me and goes, why didn't you have Scotty beam you up? And I said, well, the transporter's down. Mm-hmm. So we all had a big laugh. The third guy in the elevator was Herb Kane because the very <laughs> next day our conversation was in the San Francisco Chronicle. That is so, cool. <laughs> so it's pretty and trippy. Jeff, so I love having Jeff, Herb Kane in the book. don't so lie. You know you're that. wearing that costume right now on the phone. <laughs> It's not Halloween. Anyway. Um, <laughs> no, but it's April Fool's coming so, up. So I'm curious. One, one of the things that you do so wonderfully with your books is you can transport me back in time so I feel like I'm actually there. Thank so you, I would I would love to know how you build the time machine. Okay. Well, my theory on time machine building, I, I can only tell you how I do it. And, you know, because everyone's going to, have different approaches according to, you know, what sort of, I don't know, background and researching they have. I have an extensive research background, as you know, because my master's degree is in classics. 
And, you know, when you're an academic, you learn how to research. And if you're researching the ancient world, you really know you really learn how to research. So how, how I approach writing uh, history is first I have to believe as much of it as I can. I have to anchor myself in as much reality as I can. Because I feel like if I can believe what's going on, then I can convey that belief to my readers who will and then in turn feel like it's real. And I'm trying to sort of carry, create and carry that sense of realism all the way to when someone buys my book. So how I, how I approach it is first I rely on using as much actual detail and as much actual history as I possibly can. And I don't mean just the broad history of, okay, in 1940 in October this event happened, so I better make sure I get it in the book. I mean, that is crucial. You know, if something humongous happens uh, nationwide on, or, you know, that's a, that everyone's going to be talking about, you need to have that covered when you're, when you're writing in that period, in that particular time or that particular day. But I mean realism in terms of the, of the minutia and the detail of everyday life. So for me, you know, I, I use real stores. I use real businesses. I use actual phone numbers. I, I rely on San Francisco newspapers and a lot of ephemera, um, brochures, pamphlets, tickets, maps, uh, all kinds of paper paper stuff to really help me uh, anchor the the locations and where Miranda has to go to real addresses. So, for example, Playland at the Beach, um, I had to look at a lot of old maps uh, from the period, get the rides correctly, uh, make sure that if she's going to grab a hot dog, she's going to the right place to grab a hot dog. At one point she gets uh, what is a famous San Francisco ice cream dessert called It's It. I don't know. If you were here in the 80s, you probably know them. It's like an ice cream sandwich uh, between two oatmeal cookies dipped in chocolate. And uh, there were they oh were only God. available at Playland at the beach at that time, and you had to go to what was called an It stand. So I had to make sure that I got the details like that right. And when I do, then I feel like I have boundaries around me that I can, in the middle I can invent things, and I then I, I feel like I have that foundation of realism, and that's really you know what I do. That's why I have as one of my primary uh, research tools is a 1940 Pacific Telephone and Telegraph uh, yellow pages. Uh, it's actually yellow pages and white pages all combined. It's a huge book because it goes through San Francisco and Berkeley, Treasure Island, and you know when I when Miranda goes to a, ca- a cafe or a restaurant. Or, or a dry cleaner, for that matter. It's a real place with a real address and a real phone number, and I I use it whenever I can. Nice. Amazing. Yeah. No. So. You know, and, oh, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh. An oh, awkward no, silence say, no, go ahead moment. And your <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I was gonna I was gonna say you got so you know this is book four in the series, like you just said. Right. And. You know, when you start going along, it's like you know you have like one, you know, like one, two, three, and then four starts to become like you, you know, like the change book. It's like in the series where you know things start becoming more changing, more blowing up. And did you kind of plan things to kind of go that way when you started the series to kind of have an idea how it was plotting, or did this just kind of come about? And you're like, all right, now I got book four down, and and this is what I'm going to do, and it just kind of came that way. That's an excellent question, John. I commend you for that question because that's that's really really um, true. I mean, I think there's just sort of an organic. I am saving that too because Jeff always says <laughs> I got bad questions. Oh, that's an excellent question um, because the first time there's, for sort... <laughs> there's sort of an organic trail, I think, when you're writing a series because essentially a series is like different chapters of one long book. You know, you're writing if you're if you're if you're writing a close you know, close point of view of a protagonist. I mean, you're really centering your book around a particular character rather than a process or a place. Um, you're really writing the story of that person's life. And, you know, there's sort of, there's going to obviously be peaks and valleys in every book, but the books also will sort of conform to a, a certain a certain rhythm. And, yeah, there are major changes ahead for Miranda. Um, obviously, as I said, this is her last 
mystery set in San Francisco. But no, when I started, I had no idea this would this would be this way because you know when I started when I wrote the book, I it 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 was a, it was a book that I'd written. I had not I did not have a sequel on hand, and I you know I I sold it when. Uh, the publishing industry had just taken a big downturn, and they weren't buying anything. But I still got a two-book contract from it, which I, for which I was very thankful. So then I was pressed to, you know, do a do a sequel. Um, I hadn't necessarily conceived of it as a, as a, even as a series. And you know, that's how it goes. You sort of write the books as you are contracted to, according to whatever contract your agent's working out. But within that, I also just because of my writing process. I like to leave a lot of room for serendipity. I like to leave room for discovery as I write. So, for example, I'm not a I'm not a really precise plotter. I do plot loosely. I I know where the sort of where the where the climax and the denouement and different points of articulation will be along the way, kind of like a a loose highway roadmap. But it's not uh, a U.S geological map with the details of the terrain and the elevation. That's the kind of stuff that I leave to discovery along the way, because every time I've ever written anything, you know, half the joy is in going ahead and you're following your map, but it's just like when you're driving, you want to take that surprise road that says wine tasting to the right. I know you do, Jeff. Or, (laughs) you know, you want to take the, the other side of the the path that you see or you want to stop at the vista along the way. You know, you you just want to leave those opportunities for discovery. And this is just how it worked out. You know, I I really didn't know that Miranda's her quest for her mother was going to to turn out to be this vivid, this this important. I you know, it was certainly not a concept when I first, when I wrote the first book. But that's the road that I've been following and it's the road that spoke to me for City of Sharks. Nice. Well, yeah, uh, first of all, Ern Rick, I'm just saying. What was that? Um, <laughs> Got to get them together, please. Yeah. I wouldn't do the wine One tasting. One of the things about – I wouldn't do the wine tasting, so you're right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, actually, I don't drink but either. But you know what okay. I would oh. do? And yeah. it is California, and it's legal in Washington, too, and I think you could all figure out what I would taste instead. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know. Brownies to the right, <laughs> okay. Could be. Whatever it happens to be. Great American but, smokeout, especially on four twenty. April twenty is coming up. My Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> that too, chocolate dipped, you know, brownies, yeah, you know, cookies, it all works. whatever, it all olive works. oil. It's you know, just whatever's <laughs> going to strike your fancy. <laughs> it's like you want to leave room for those moments as a writer, right? Uh, right. Because. That's the magic of it, you know. If, if we were, if if we all approached it like an engineer, there's no magic in the writing. Then it's just a chore. True. Yeah. So Work. you know, but that's what that's what I that's how I do it. And you know, with I think everybody that I've ever talked to who's a writer, every time we look at a new book, we're like, "How did I do that? Can I do it again?" Oh shit! Excuse me. But I mean, yeah. that's what we wind <laughs> no. up saying because it's yeah. like. Yeah. You know, you're looking at a screen, you don't you just you know, you're 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 kind of having to recreate the process all over again because it does take that it takes a lot of creative juice. And I try to save that creative energy and nurture it by leaving those moments, those opportunities for discovery along the way. You know, there have been characters I've written that I assumed they were going to be secondary minor characters and then they wound up being major characters. Who knew? You know, they just came in and stole a scene. So yeah, I love those characters. I love them. Yeah, they're fun. Yeah, my, they my last novel was the same thing, so I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that, uh, since I'm such a fan of Miranda's, um, I was mm-hmm. a little disturbed by sort of the finality of this, uh, mm. without spoiling anything. Um, right. Please tell me that you have another story in mind for her. Oh, I definitely have another story in mind for her. How that story will see the light of day is the debatable part, because I am currently at the end of my contract with my current publisher, or with the publisher that published uh, Minotaur, that published uh, the Miranda series. Mm-hmm. And every writer, uh, especially when you're 
laboring beneath the goal of attaining, you know, success on the New York Times bestseller list. Um, and I've been very grateful for the, success, for the success I've had, no question. And certainly the critical success I've had has been humbling. But, you know, you're always wanting to reach a larger audience. For me, it's not, it's not about even about money as much as it's very gratifying to know you're being read by a lot of people hopefully, who appreciate your work. And, you know, you wind up having to do different things for your business because you are your business. Your writing is your business. And one thing that I have to do at this point is take a break, a short break, and try something else uh, because I don't want to necessarily go back and work with Minotaur on another Miranda book um, for various reasons. And I've, you know, had to make some personal business decisions related to that. And, you know, so I do have another book in, that I'm working on right now that is completely different, uh, that is a thriller set in the 1980s. And coincidentally, John, it is set in a part of the country that I know very well, which is Humboldt County, and it's, it takes place in during the campaign for marijuana eradication program that mm-hmm. Governor Duke Majan started in California when really we started mm-hmm. to get the, the, the really heavy-duty criminal element involved in growing marijuana in california because of course it was like prohibition so that's when it's set and i'm really looking forward to getting that out but jeff as you know miranda is a part of my soul i mean she goes beyond being just a protagonist that i write she's really a part of me and i have about half of her origin story actually written um and i'm going to finish it up as soon as i finish up this new project and at that point, we will see how it sees the light of day. You know, uh, it may be I may publish it independently. I may be, I publish it through another publisher. I don't know yet. But um, I'm not going to let her. I'm not going to let her fade away. Uh, and, and you know, her, the next chapter of her life will be, at least, temporarily. Who knows? In London or other parts of the UK, uh, while it's being blitzed by the Germans. So. Um, you know, I've got some stories in mind for that um, for that phase, and I've done some research about it. So I don't intend to let her go. Well, you're such a damn good writer. I'm sorry that um, you have to do this, but um, well, if you're at the you. phone book, every, so I'm just saying, yeah. It's just yeah, one I, of those I, things I, that you know, it's it, it happens to everybody, and it's uh, it's just a part of the business. You know, and you can look back and say, well, this could have happened differently. This could have happened differently. But all in all, um, you know, hindsight is always great. But when you're starting out and you're new and, you know, I mean, it's just like I said, you, you don't see things as clear clearly as you do when you have a little more experience. I now have the experience. So, I've, as I said, I've made some different decisions uh, regarding the business part of of my career and um i'm fully committed to realizing those and taking miranda with me so you know there you go that's the best i could do but that's awesome if you're able to have the control over her and that's also big too if you're able to you know do the control because you know you've heard the horror stories of people giving that kind of stuff up and oh and yeah kind of screwed Oh yeah. 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 That's not good. You know, no. You know, there's there people control books, um but nobody controls my character. And one right. reason Jeff you may sense some finality in there is is because other than her origin story which will be set in obviously in San Francisco, um really to continue her on, she will have to move, you know, the, the part of she's going to Britain, she's going to Britain, you know. That's what's going to happen. So it's kind of exciting if you think about it because taking her out of the city that she's such a part of, uh, in terms of just just in terms of the writing process and her character, uh, will be really um, also really fun because Miranda's going to be a fish out of water. And if people in San Francisco find her uh, sometimes somewhat abrasive, you can imagine what they're going to think of her in London. But oh, <laughs> we'll true. see when we get there. <laughs> nice. So real quick before we wrap up, because wow, we've we, we, we've come to the end here, but. You, you say that you're working on another book, so I'm kind of wondering, do, when you kind of sit down to kind of, you know, kind of write 
something new outside of the series okay. and this and that. Do you look at this as like a challenge? Do you want to do something that challenges yourself as writing? Absolutely. I mean, I, I want to do something that, first of all, that I feel good about, that I like, that I like the story, that I like the character. And for me, um, it's very important that the book is, has something to say. Uh, I, I, don't tr- I, I really don't, I don't like to preach. I don't like books that, that preach. But to me, it's more, about, it's more about being able to take something entertaining and make sure people come away with something more than just entertainment that they're left with something to think about, that if they're reading a historical, they're left learning something, that they're left being able to make connections between what's happening in contemporary life and then what's happening within the book, that they're able to come away with some social things, that are, you know, social considerations that they may not be aware of. And I, I started that with City of Dragons, and, and really that's, that's a key to who I am as a writer. I don't think I will ever write a book that is, solely entertainment i'm always trying to sneak in something other than other than entertainment though i do not denigrate the entertainment aspects by any means i just want my readers to have something more so whenever i approach a new project that is uppermost in my mind and i as i said i really have to like what i'm writing and because i grew up and spent my high school years in humboldt county it's an area i know very very well and i think it's a fascinating era area and this is a fascinating era for it because i was there so i'm looking forward to not writing about the 1940s which i've been doing uh and i i still continue i still want to continue to do through more miranda stories but writing about a different time and a different place and writing in a slightly different genre because this is going to be more of a thriller than it will be of it's not a pi novel it is a thriller so that's where we're going nice nice well kelly we love having you on. It's been a fascinating interview. You you got to come on and do this just for the hell of it sometime because we have a lot of stuff we could just talk about and just to talk about. Anytime. We can talk about marijuana. We oh, can talk next about... Tuesday? You want to do this next Tuesday? No. <laughs> <laughs> we could talk about music. We could talk about oh, anything hey. you guys want to talk about. You're if both you wonderful. Need... And if you need that little research about that kind of stuff, you know where to find me because I'm all about the music where to and the marijuana. You. Together, I'm with you. I've it. got your so. number. <laughs> I can't take you guys so, anywhere. Hey, so, <laughs> you could take me everywhere. But <laughs> so, so the best place for people to find out about you is Kelly Stanley with an I. KellyStanley.com is the best place for them to find out where you're at, what's going on, contact you, and the whole nine yards. Absolutely. I also have a Facebook page, which is Crime Fiction by Kelly Stanley. And really, if they even look for Kelly with a Y by accident, um, I own that domain. So they, it will be redirected to my website. So. Oh, awesome. I'm good. Smart. It's great. Awesome. Well, you know, when you have a name that's constantly misspelled, that's what you've got to do. <laughs> so, that's true. It's no you know. problem. It's, I'm pretty easy it's to find. Like and you know what always cracks me up? People are like, oh, why do you spell your name that way? And it's like, yeah, like I had a choice. My parents didn't say, do you want this way or do you want this way? Which way would you prefer? No moron. They just told me what it was. <laughs> I'm you. Yeah, I'm not people complaining. I like sometimes. it. But I just figure it would be, you know, I try to make it as easy as possible for people to find me because I'm always flattered when they try. So, you know, right. if you're trying, I want to make it easy to do. So, But, right. yeah, I'd come on and talk to you guys for Anytime you want me, uh, you know I'm always here, working away. Awesome. Unless I'm 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 out and about, you know, doing my irregular socializing, which you have to do, because we have such a bifurcated career where you're writing by yourself in your garret, and then you know you get let loose into the general population once in a while. So I'm happy to do it. You guys are wonderful. Well, let me just you know, and I'm just going to put a little something in your ear to just think okay. about when you get off, okay? Because, okay, no problem. You know, because Suspense Magazine does have Suspense Publishing with Paul Kempercos and Joseph Badal and Susan Santangelo and a bunch of other authors, you know, some New York Times bestselling authors. So just in case you ever get that urge and you want to kind of see, a, you know, maybe a book, yeah, you know, give us a call, you know, and um, let us, let awesome. us have a crack at you. you know, that sounds like a know. lot of fun. As I've got a lot <laughs> of stuff on the shelves that I want to write. So that sounds Believe like a great me. time. We got some open shelf space. 
So you can awesome. just come awesome. up with that if you remember that. Yeah. But definitely, hey, Kelly, I again, definitely will. And the book, of course, is called City of Sharks, and it is out now and available however you read or listen or watch books. You can find it in your format. And, Kelly, thank you again so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure, and we will talk with you soon. Wonderful. Thank you, John. Thank you, Jeff. And I hope to see you the next time I'm in Seattle, which will be sometime in the next few months. Oh, excellent. Please do. Let's get together. Definitely. Yes. And okay, if you, you come guys. down to L.A., send me an email. Oh, I love L.A. Are you kidding? I love L.A. I, I, go, I try to get there at least once a year. You come and you send so, us an email, and we'll come, Shay and I will meet you out. Awesome. Okay, we'll do. All right. Thank Have you a good one, Bye-bye. You too. Bye-bye. Take care. Care. Bye-bye. So, again, everybody, that is author Kelly Stanley, and make sure you visit Kelly Stanley with an I or a Y dot com for more information and buy the book City of Sharks, the fourth in her series. Fantastic writer. What a fantastic interview she was. First time we ever had on. It's always great, Jeff, when, you, when you're not really sure. You know, like we know Kelly outside of the interview, you know, from, from things, but then when you get them on, it's like, wow, just hit a home run. Oh, I love Kelly, and uh, her books are great, so Absolutely. please read them. <laughs> so I know, yep. Jeff, that you're a little under the weather, and it's been a great show, but I do want to remind everybody that we are hooking up a guest. Um, we've had on – I've talked with them before. We've had them on, I think, a couple years ago. Not really sure when yep. we're going to have them on, but uh, Jeffrey Deaver is going to join us on the show sometime in April to talk about his latest book, The Cutting Edge. So people should look out for that, and I'll uh, be tweeting about when that's going to come on. Yeah, that's and got a better then, cover than the other one we were talking about a couple of years ago. He does. He has, a, he has a better cover than the Steel Kiss. I will give him that. That's, that. that's good. Hopefully, you know, and then the Burial Hour, which was before, was a much of a step up from Steel Kiss. So I think hopefully they fired that artist and got somebody else. Um, but in June, we have – I'm going to let you say who's coming in June. Oh, no, go ahead. No, I'm going to let you say it. <laughs> we have uh, we have uh, it's Kate, Kate Carlisle. Carlisle. Yes. Yeah, Kate author Carlisle, of, uh, The Fixer of, Upper Mysteries. And right, uh, if you, you guys are Hallmark on, fans. Which you find on the, the, Hallmark, Hallmark, uh, the Hallmark Mystery Channel. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, starring Jewel as uh, her main character. And she also right, has another so, series as well. That's a lot That's of fun as well. That's going to be cool. Yeah, that'll be I'm cool looking to get her on to talk about that. Yeah. So we got some yeah. great we got some great things coming on. Of course, uh, you know, spring is upon us, and we are going to be going right here into summer coming up. Can't believe it's already April coming here in like the next three days. So, Jeff, you feel better? Uh, we'll do my best. Thank you. I can't believe we're already done with the first quarter of the year. I mean, literally, the first quarter is now over, and I just look back and I go, "Where the hell did it all go?" Agreed. I have no idea. All right, then. So, again, make sure you uh, go to iTunes, search Suspense Radio. You can uh, follow it. You get all the, you know, all the episodes sent to you. Listen to what you want. Listen to what you don't want to listen to. But we always have some great, exciting guests on the shows, of course, with the Story Blender Inside Edition, uh, which comes up this Saturday. And hold on real quick. I'll tell you well, who, who I have coming this Saturday? up. Um, that's what I'm going to look up right now. Um, I got Tom Pitts and I got Matt Ginsberg coming up this Saturday. Okay. So two authors that have never been on the show before. So, um, again, we always like to make sure that every author has a voice. They're not all the time's bestsellers. Sometimes we also have authors just just need a little push. Great authors just need a little push. And, um, you know, that's what we like to do. So we give everybody a chance. But So here we go, man. Until next time. What do we like to say? Keep reading. Keep reading. And you can read and you can read Steve Barry and Kelly Stanley right now. So Absolutely. See you guys next time. Good night, everybody. Enjoy. Have fun. Later. We're out.